Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Jeff Ogilvie. If you missed part one, check it out in iTunes on our website or on Stitcher or wherever else you listen to podcasts. In part two, we dive into how Jeff got into golf course architecture, what he loves about strategy, what he thinks about PGA Tour setups, what TPC course he'd like to renovate, and much more. Without further ado, here's part two of our conversation with Jeff Ogilvie. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You're a big fan of golf course architecture. In fact, now you're you're part of uh, a firm. I mean, you're with Mike Clayton, Mike Cocking, and Ashley Mead, uh, OCCM. So how did you get interested in the subject at first? Well, at first, I, I mean, I grew up in Melbourne, right, right next door to Royal Melbourne, basically. Um, I wasn't a member, but I was a caddy at Royal Melbourne I was pretty young 13 14 and if you're a caddy they let you play the east course after 4 30 p.m so I wasn't a caddy to caddy I had no interest in caddying I caddied a little bit caddies were kind of dying in Australia a little bit at that point it was kind of dying off people weren't doing it as much but I'd caddy every now and then but I really did it just so I could play Royal Melbourne after 4 30 um and I'd all summer mum would drop me off there at 428 and I'd walk straight to the first tee on the east course and I would play until dark and she'd pick me up um every now and then I'd sneak a few holes on the west which we weren't supposed to do which is the better of the two I mean they're both amazing so I did that then I joined Victoria Golf Club um when I was 16 um but I grew up on the sand belt and I just thought which are cl- clearly everybody who knows golf course architecture has any interest knows that the sand belt whether they've been there or not, they, they understand that they're some of the world's best courses. Um, I just thought that was normal. So I didn't, I didn't know how treated, I mean, everyone told me how good Royal Melbourne was and these courses are great and they're better than everywhere, but I didn't really, we all thought that everything in America was better. The Australian attitude traditionally was always, Oh, everything in America is that's always on TV and they're green and the sand is white and the water's blue and big pine trees and everything that we didn't have. (laughs) we thought was great. But then as I, as I kind of got to the elite amateur level and you'd play amateur tournaments, it's so unfair. I mean, it's fair for the amateur, but it's unfair for everyone else. Amateur tournaments are played on the best courses in the world. Usually like the mm-hmm. British amateur, I mean, I played British amateurs at Royal St. George's, Muirfield and Turnbury. And I played the St. Andrews Lynx trophy, a great amateur tournament that's still going on, which was three rounds around the old and one around the new, um, and the Brabazon Trophy, the English stroke play, was Royal St. George's we played one time. I mean, just, so I just thought, well, just this is what golf is. Because everywhere, I knew there were some crappy courses around, but I just thought the great courses were all great. And then when I turned pro and started playing in Europe, and I realized the courses that you play on tour are just like, what is this? 
this isn't good. This is no, nah, this is not it. Like, when do we get to the good courses? <laughs> um, and I finally, like, it took me forever to work out. So like I grew up in, on, on in the area of maybe the densest great courses in the world, at least up there with Long Island and Westchester County and Carmel and and Surrey, say in London. It it was just I couldn't. It just it just disappointed me so much that everywhere we went it was just so vanilla and bad like i just and it was it was going to bad courses that made me realize how good good courses are yeah and how and how much um your enjoyment of the day your enjoyment of the game whether you acknowledge it or not is inbuilt in where you're playing um and not just the golf course either the the whole the just the feel of the clubhouse and the smell of the locker room and the and the way the parking lot is and, and the first tee and the pro shop and and just the whole feel of the place contributes so much to your enjoyment of the game and it's so underestimated and I kind of I worked that out in reverse because <laughs> I just thought this was golf and when I started going to lots of other places I'm like this is just not as enjoyable why you know i'm playing golf i'm making money i'm hitting the ball well i'm making lots of birdies why and i finally worked out that someone would invite me to sunningdale or something and all of a sudden that feeling was back it's like oh this is the game i play i love this i mean how good is this place you know and i started really noticing the level of enjoyment i had just it's a feeling more than anything else it's just when you're at one of those play and i just started getting really addicted to those sort of places you know i got a few invitations to swinley forest which still might be my favorite course in the world um Harry Colt's least bad course is how he describes it. <laughs> um, it's like a mini little Pine Valley, really exclusive. I had a friend who knew the manager and I went and played there a few times. It was just absolutely amazing. It was just like, I just want to play golf all day, every day. Just drop me off here every day. That's just what I wanted. And then we would go back out on tour and play some awful cow paddock in Germany. And it's just like, what are we doing here? Like the tour should be playing on things like Swindley Forest. This is just ridiculous. So I kind of, it went in reverse. Like I didn't know how good I had it until I went somewhere else. So it just, it grew from that really. And as I said, just that feeling of the feeling you get when you're at whatever, these really, really, really like highly ranked, amazing places. It, so many people, all this shot values and like they focus on completely the wrong thing. It's just a feel when you pull up to Cypress point, you're just happy don't care it's just a good feel like the the locker room's the same one it's been for a hundred years like the pro shop's tiny like there's the first tee boys go play we'll see you in four hours like it's just everything about it it's like i just liked golf so much more at places like that that i started craving going to places like that um and it kind of built out of that it's the really great places generally get it really well because all the emphasis is, is placed in the attentions on the golf course and, and kind of everything else comes second, it seems. Yeah, it's no big-ass gates and driveways and bag drops and fountains and, like, brass handles on the doorknobs and silk toilet paper. I mean, all that's just complete fluff that means absolutely nothing and contributes nothing to the feel of a place. The f- the feel of a place is, is is the tradition and the the golf comes first. This is a golf club, guys. We're all here to play golf. Like we're gonna do. It. I mean, a lot of them have got amazing clubhouses and 
and I've got all the other stuff, but that's just makeup on top of like makeup on top of something beautiful. Like it doesn't need to be there to be great. Um, as you say, focus on the golf and almost all of them are very, very like tied to the, the history of their club. Like this is the way it was. So this is the way we're going to keep it. And they've been, had obviously had great superintendents and great managers and greens committees through the years that generally have preserved, have understood why their place was great and preserved that. The places who don't understand it with the bad supers and the bad greens committees and the, and the bad owners have thought that their driving range wasn't, their lockers weren't big enough or, or that we need free beef jerky after the fourth green or something like all that stuff. It, the, the clubs that have focused on the non-golf stuff and the have lost their way. The ones who, the Cypress Points, the Pine Valleys, the Sunningdales, the Swinley Forests, the Shinnecock Hills, they're, they're so like they are, they would have been 80 years ago that the, the, the smart people in the club have understood why their place was great and they've preserved that at all costs. And there's a reason why these places are great and, and the clubs that recognise that are the ones that the ones that thrive and and kind of get better and better over time because they just create that the more history and more feel to the place. It's like a perfect analogy. I was thinking somebody was saying something along similar lines. They were talking about all the architects that have worked at this one course, and I was thinking in my head, I'm like, you know, Oakmont's only had three pro golf professionals in their whole history, and you know, some of these clubs have had ten architects work there. It's like that, you know, you're trying to do too much less is more a lot of times in golf and and just being focused on the core of the game which is the course and competition is is all you kind of need what's your biggest pet peeve in golf course architecture well the general one would be a completely a complete misunderstanding of strategy and i know the non-golf architecture people like start rolling their eyes when when people like us start talking about strategy but it's so fundamental. It's architecture 101 that the whole, to me, has to make sense. Um, 10 at Riv, or, or let's say pick 13 at Augusta, a hole that everybody knows. Like, it's, it's close to the perfect hole because the more kind of, the, the, the better you are and the braver you are off the tee, the easier your second shot, like, and exponentially too, you're closer to the hole, you have a flatter lie and you have a better angle. Every yard you go away from the creek or every yard that you're not capable of hitting a good draw, the further away from the creek, you're further away, your angle gets worse and the ball gets more above your feet. It's, and it's a hole that gives the 18 handicapper a par every time, really. Like if, if, if you want to make five, on 13 Augusta, and that's your innate goal, your goal, you will make it every time, generally, because you've got 100 yards of fairway out to the right, you've got 100 yards of fairway to lay it up into, and you've got a massive green to just hit it onto with a big backstop, and you're going to have less than 25 feet for birdie every single time if you play it with that's your intent. But as soon as you start trying to make a four or a three, that's when you bring in all the carnage. And are you brave enough and are you good enough to do this? Um, and that principle, that's the one that annoys me when they don't get it right. And funnily enough, almost nobody gets it right. Like it's such a basic principle that um, 
you open up a green from one side and, and, and you challenge the player to hit it to the good angle. But by doing that, you have a deep little bunker or an out-of-bounds fence or you have the water on that side of the hole. So you have to challenge that off the tee if you want to hit the ball close. If you don't want to hit the ball close and you just want to make a par or a bogey, that's fine. Take the easy way, take no risk, but you're really going to have no fun. Like that principle to me, it seems to be hard for people to get, but that when that goes wrong, I completely kind of tune out and I have no interest. And unfortunately, it goes wrong almost everywhere these days. Or no, not on the, this, this renaissance, if you like, to steal Doke's company name which is appropriate of architecture. That's bringing that back. Mm-hmm. Um, but a specific one would be, I don't understand why trees can be in front of bunkers, double hazards, <laughs> like one specific little advantage. Quite often you'll, you'll hit it in the bunker and you'd be screwed because you're in the bunker, but there's a tree in front of the bunker as well. It's like, well, what, why is the bunker here? Cause I was already going to be screwed anyway. Like I, and it gives the guy who's practiced his fairway bunker play and has developed the skill to do that. It's like saying, nah, you're not allowed to do that. There's no point practicing your bunker play because we're just going to put you behind a tree. You know, double hazards for a really little specific example just it just drives me absolutely crazy. Completely agree with that. I, mine's always cart path, but the strategy stuff, I played this new Gil Hans, this Hoopy match club. And it's sure enough, it's a match play course, and they have half pars on the scorecard. You know, they it's de- oh, deterred against to talk about your score at the course, like what you shot. Like they don't want to hear it. But like I walked off the 18th hole after playing it once, and I th- I was thinking through it, and I was like, you know what, the strategy made sense on every single hole. If I took the aggressive line, I got the reward, and I, it was almost like shocking to feel that way. Where I was like, wow, it got all the strategy right. It's it's crazy how often it goes wrong. Um, so do you you mentioned with the double hazard? Like, do you think that the way the PGA Tour courses that they play promotes a certain type of skill and and mutes other skills in golfers? I think so. Yeah. I mean the 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 one the biggest probably the biggest issue I think that certainly faces. American golf in other countries, but mostly in the U.S., is this the overwatering of golf courses, the over irrigation, making it really green, um, and golf is always that it's is more interesting when the ball will do something when it lands. When a ball plugs, all value of controlling ball flight and shape, and it's completely irrelevant. If the ball is just going to plug, then plug on the fairway, and then plug around the greens and not go anywhere when it lands, you are really just promoting long-hitting good putters. Um, you want to hit the ball long and you want to be a great putter and be great with your 60, you know, around the greens at a rough. Um, that Now, I understand these are going on TV and motley courses that are like different shades of green and brown don't present perhaps to some people's eye as well as um, stripy green fairways. But when you when you set them up soft, which pretty much exclusively the PGA Tour is set up very soft, very narrow, very long, very long rough, very kind of penal style of thinking, um, you create guys that all you want to do is go home and work on hitting long high drivers, long high iron shots, and, and be a great putter. Um, 
Whereas, say, St. Andrews, for example, where the ball never stops when it lands, you know, it stops when it wants to. The flight that it comes in on is very important. The angle you come from is just exponentially more important the angle you're on if the ball's landing, rolling when it lands. Um, they might not present quite as well on TV, but they, they promote a much more interesting style of golf. Um, so I understand the predicament. I mean, St. Andrews is an underachiever on TV and an overachiever when you're there. You know, and that's the extreme example of the whole kind of brown sort of no definition kind of thing on TV. It doesn't present that well, but when you play it, you understand that that's the best version of the game. You can and you can replicate that principle on any golf course, really. And it can be not going to be as brown as St Andrews. It can be greener, but it has to be. We have to water golf courses a lot. We have to water them less because we have to let the ball bounce when it lands if the ball doesn't bounce and roll when it lands the so much of the kind of depth and interest all the shades of gray come out of the game and it's uh that that would be my one thing we, we promote long hitting good putters just because of how soft and narrow and long our courses are it seems like to me just having watched a lot of professional golf like almost like the the real the most impressive talent with tour players is the ability to hit the ball the exact number they want and if it rolls that's when they lose control is that right yeah we're very very good um even before trackman trackman's made it better and we're a little bit more fine-tuned but even before that sort of technology tour guys yeah between under kind of 200 yards i mean when guys are feeling it and playing well they could tell you after the ball's gone 10 yards in the air if it's going to go 196 or 178 or I mean, very, very good at distance control. Like um, it's so important um, to play, but as you said, it kind of gets a little bit, e- it's, it's a little bit easier when the ball doesn't roll when it lands, because it's very definite. Like you've got a definite starting point and a definite ending point. There's no like, Oh, did that hit a down slope or did that hit an up slope? Was the height is less relevant. I mean, a high shot that goes 170 and a low shot that goes 170. If it's soft, they both go 170, but the low one that flies 170 is going to go 185 if it's firm, and the high one's going to go 175, you know? So um, fly, there's just more depth to more, more shades of gray, I think, firm golf brings. Um, but, but I understand that I understand the, the presentation of the, the pictures and stuff, but um, firm golf send, tends to find the class in a PJ tour event pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, you, it's firm golf is so much tougher to play. It's just so much harder to hit numbers and it's, it brings the precision to, of the game up so much more. So, um, of all, you know, I don't want to get you in trouble with anybody that's like consulting architects, um, at like clubs or anything. If you could just blow up and completely redo one TPC course, which one would it be? I would love, and I, and I think, uh, as I said, I think Pete Dye was great. You know, I think he really understood the strategy of the game better than anyone else in that era. Um, most of his holes make sense in some way. Mm-hmm. Aesthetically, I don't love the whole, like all the sleepers and stuff, but I mean, in some places, I think they're great. I think they've got a little overdone. And, um, I would love to have a go at Sawgrass. Um, and I wouldn't change the routing. 
uh, you wouldn't change the, the kind of innate kind of strategy on the course. I would just make it a little bit more attractive around the edges. I think it's a little bit too sanitized and neat now. Um, I'm not a big fan of those big, long, flat bunkers. You know, those 200-yard long bunkers that just like run halfway up a hole on one side with just this perfectly uniform bank along the side of it. Like I'd like to see that area of Florida can look like Pinehurst. You know, it can look kind of raggedy and pine straw and sandy kind of, I would love to kind of get that more to a Pinehurst, Pine Valley style kind of thing. Cause I think the bones at Sawgrass are there to just be, it's a, it's a really, really good golf course. It's just a little bit too neat and a little bit too kind of, I don't know, not kind of, it just forced narrowness in a few different spots, and um, I think it's a wonderful course. I mean, just just the first few holes. I mean, you have to fade the tee shot off the first. You have to draw the second shot. The second hole, you have to draw the tee shot, fade the second shot, and that pattern follows almost the whole course. If you don't move it both ways, you're really not going to be able to shoot a great score there. And I think um, that with kind of that kind of rugged look and some like some good looking bunkers and stuff. I think it could be really, really special sawgrass. I think it's really close to being special. Yeah, when it opened, it was a lot more rugged looking. I feel like it's gotten more and more kept over time. And I think it's part of the, you know, when you charge $400 for somebody to come play, that's what they expect. But, you know, you talk about those 200-yard long traps. It's like, you know, for the vast majority of that bunker, it has no effect on on a tour player. And it just, like... I always, whenever I walk around that golf course or watch it on TV, I think about how hard it must be for a 15 handicap. Oh, yeah, that would be a brutal course for a 15 handicap guy. I mean, it beats us up, as you've seen. And because it's such a test and you you really have to be moving the ball both ways and it's always windy and you've got to be greater in the greens, obviously. Um, it's it would be, I can't even imagine the average, like the average nice 12, 15 handicap guy who's a, who's a good golfer playing there, it would just bash you over the head all day. And it would just be um, just, and everybody wants to play it obviously because of 17 and the history and the tournament. And, and I completely get that, but it wouldn't be that enjoyable experience if you did it all the time, because it would just beat you over the head all the time. Yeah. That's, I, I think about if I lived there I and I could play there every day, I probably would play a lot of other places in town more than there because, you know, it'd be really fun to go play every once in a while. But like, you know, playing like extreme championship golf course, like isn't always the most fun place to play on a, on a day off or like just for a casual round. No, well, I think that's the thing that's gone the most wrong. If, if, if you want to pick something that's going wrong, I think golf is going great. But um, that kind of Torrey Pine South mentality of take this great municipal on this just arguably maybe one of the best pieces of land in the world and you just make it the hardest, longest slog that completely detracts from where you're at because it's such a beatdown. It's like somebody bashing you in the head with a sledgehammer 18 times. In a row. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's missing the point. And like, I wouldn't want to go play that. When people ask, should I go play Tory Pines? I'm like, no, <laughs> you're not going to have any fun. Go for a walk around the property, sure, because it's a stunning place, but it's so hard that it's not enjoyable. It, it I mean, with the exception of probably Pine Valley and Oakmont, um, which are outliers really in the great golf courses, in that their intent was to be really, really difficult. And 
just they happen to end up great. I mean, generally, if difficulty is the mission, you don't end up with something great. Um, generally, Oakmont and Pine Valley have somehow got out of that for, for lots of other reasons. But um, the great golf courses usually have lots of width and lots of options. And a, and if a tour player wants to go shoot even par or something at Augusta, it's really not that difficult if his intent is to shoot even par. Now, as soon as he starts trying to make birdies, that advantage comes and he shoots 78. But they allow everybody to play. These, these top 50 golf courses generally are easier for an 18 handicapper and harder for a scratch player. You know, and I think that that's what has gone got when 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 places go wrong that's the point they miss i think you want to make golf as easy as you can for the 18 handicapper because it's already really hard for him you know a dead flat hole with no hazards and like bumper bowling version of golf is still really hard for that guy mm-hmm. but the scratch guy he needs the challenge and i think the st andrews the augustas the shinnecocks the nationals the um pick any in the chicago golf clubs the Cypress points. I mean, you pick any number of them, and generally they're they're easier for the 18 handicap guy, but they're much more difficult for the tour level guy or the scratch guy, um, because the scratch guy wants to beat his head, shoot two or three under par, and to shoot two or three under par, you've got to start making some taking some risks, and then you start getting into all the carnage. If you just want to shoot, like the fairway is usually really wide and you just, when you're 80 handicapper, you want to just bogey every hole. It's relatively easy. If your goal to bogey every hole is to do that. Cause they give you a lot of room to avoid the problems. If you're willing to give up birdies and pars, mm-hmm. um, that aspect I think is, is kind of where it went wrong. It's like, we're just going to make golf hard because people want it hard. And when you make it hard across the board, it, it's just, it's just something that's too hard. You need to have challenge. But too hard just for hard sake, it just gets boring after a while and you choose to do something else because it's just it's beating you over the head and where's the fun? It's gotta give you a few thrills here and there. You know, you gotta find your ball and you gotta be able to get to par fours in two and par threes in one for that example for, for, for that matter. Um, it's that if if you if you if you went by that principle, I think you really it's hard to go wrong. How do we make this easier for an eighteen handicapper and and harder for a scratch guy? I think Golf courses that tick that box are usually almost all the way there. Yeah, and and a good way to do that is with don't water it too much because then you know when a guy duffs it, it rolls for a while, and it's rolling towards the hole. And for the good player, it makes the margin for error slimmer when they're trying to get at a pin. It's like you know it all goes hand in hand, and it seems pretty simple. Exactly. I mean, I know people love green, and that's fine. And and when you start stop watering so much, you still got to water to make grass grow. I mean, we're not talking about not watering, but just so the ball does something when it lands. Um, what really first made me think about this was I was at Pinehurst for the Open. I can't remember which one. I think the most recent one, the Martin Keimer, Keimer one. Yeah, twenty fourteen, um, right? Yeah. Um, and I was in the bar at the Pinehurst Hotel or whatever, and. We're just sitting there with my buddy having a beer or something, and the table next to us are like, "Oh, we started chatting about the tournament and stuff like that." And like, and they say, "Yeah, well, there were snowbirds down there, and they played there every winter, but they came down to watch the open." And I said, "Well, which course do you like the best? Do you ever play number two, or is it too hard?" And they said, "No, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. Number two is the easiest for us. That's the one we like the most because it's the easiest for us. All the other ones, they're the hard ones because they've got forced carries and stuff everywhere." And it blew me away. It's like Pinus number two. It's so difficult for us. It's out. It's just incredible. Um, but 
he explained this guy explained the husband and wife they explained that they can put it from everywhere they have no forced carries anywhere the ball rolls a long way it's quite easy to keep it out of the trouble if that's that's their only mission they get it around the green they roll their putter up onto the green and they one putt for a par or they two putt for a bogey and they're like all the other ones we've got to hit like hit shots over water and deep bunkers and all that and pine has gives the average player room to do what he can do but it at the same time it presents such a challenge. I mean, the, the, the hardest iron shot, you could be in the middle of the fairway all day at Pinehurst for a two-level golfer. If you want to finish it even par, from the middle of the fairway, if you hit 12 greens in regulation for the day, you've had a great day. And that's somebody giving you... Um, it is so hard for us. And it just crystallized this idea in my head. It's like, well, what? that's the principle. That's perfect. Number two was their favorite. And it was also my favorite. And it was my favorite because it was so difficult. And it was their favorite because it was kind of relatively easy for them. So it was just amazing. Yeah. It, to me, I, I, I'm seeing Pinehurst uh, the next week for the first time. And like, it, I've, as I've thought about through open uh, US Open Championship courses, like that one to me seems like the one that gets it the most right in terms of it's got width it's got angles but like the greens are so interesting and so difficult that like you know a 18 handicaps only going to hit four or five greens in a round you know regardless of what type of greens they are is that's where the challenge has to come to really challenge you guys it seems like yeah the greens i'll be interested to see what you think about the greens they're very repelling obviously they're all um they're up in the air and they kind of they roll off on all four sides and they're incredibly uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable, which is what a lot of great holes do. They make you they make you sort of take on shots you don't really want to, you know. But you know you kind of have to take it on anyway because if you don't take it on and swing with real conviction, you're going to miss the green and you're going to make a bogey. So you really got to play with conviction and really kind of know what you're doing. And it's a little bit. I don't know if I'd want to play Pinus number two every day, um, but it's a brilliant place and it's got such talk about great feel I and mean, it's got such a great feel um and the Crenshaw core redo is just so brilliant like it just it it didn't change Pinehurst it just brought it back to what it should be at least from an aesthetic perspective um and it got rid of the silly rough and um irrigated the center line the center line irrigation as opposed to the throwing the irrigation into the rough and stuff I mean, they did some really, really good stuff, and it should be one of the benchmarks for remodels around the country because they did they did a lot of stuff right. So, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll be surprised at how extreme some of the greens are, but I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's the only way to challenge like a player of your caliber is to like in today's game, it's become driver wedge is to have greens that make you uncomfortable with a wedge in your hand. And that does that. Bonus will do that. There is no distance away from the green that is truly comfortable until you're on it <laughs> so uh let's get you out of here on on a few qu- quick questions so you get one course on each continent what are you picking okay north america um let's say well that's a difficult one because north america might have the best bunch of golf courses there is yeah um I'm going to, I'm going to, the obvious would be Pine Valley. If you've been to Pine Valley and anyone who has would say the same thing, but I'm going to stay away and I'm going to go National Golf Links of America. I just think it's, it's, it's everything that's great about the template whole concept. And it's, it's, it's that the beauty of North Berwick and Presswick kind of presented in such a beautiful way. And like, it may be one of the more beautiful places in the world. I mean, it's just, it's just everything golf could be. It's just 
fun. It's just a fun adventure. It's just an adventure and it's fun. Um, Europe, I guess I already answered. Swinley Forest, I think, is my favorite. Now, if I want to pick the best, I, I'm, I think St. Andrews is our sports measuring stick. Um, I think everyone should go to the old course and I think everyone should play it as much as they can, walk it as much as they can, watch people play it as much as they can. And it really, after a while, it might, it, it might be like some music for people to get back the music kind of analogy. It might sound like noise at first, but after a while you begin to hear the melody, like the old course, that is what it is. It's just, it's everything. All of a sudden it might go off day one or it might take 50 days, but, eventually the light bulb's going to go off and go, oh, uh-huh, I get it now. That's the point. And it's so obvious and it's so amazing. And it's, it, it's, uh, if you put me on one golf course in Europe for the rest of my life to play, if it wasn't Swinley, just because I love the feel of the place, it would be the old course. Cause it's just, it's just, as I said, it's the, it's the sports measuring stick and it needs, it's respected, but it needs to be respected more. It needs to be visited by everybody. It's the Vatican or it's Mecca. It's like, that's, that's the thing that the whole game is built around the principles that are, that are exemplified best at the old course. Mm-hmm. Um, Australasia continent. I don't, I can't talk South America cause I've never been there. So, uh-huh. um, pick me one. Taste of the dog, hair of the dog. What's that course, I, course called? Well, I played the Jockey Club in Argentina. Oh yeah, that's supposed to be great, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. All right, so I'll, I'll go with you on that one, Jockey Club. Um, Asia, I'm not sure either. I haven't played much architecturally significant stuff in Asia. Not enough to like make any comments i know india's got a couple of great ones japan's got a couple of great ones is it hirono i think supposed to be great yeah i I heard um, that one's cool i haven't played enough there i've played a couple of tournaments there we play this cool visa to hayo thing which is not that amazing course but it sits at the bottom of mount fuji and it's a beautiful kind of place because you look up at the at the elusive mountain or whatever they call it it's in the clouds it's out of the clouds there's snow on the top it's the mountain you draw when you're a kid um, so I can't really speak for Asia, but we'll put Australia in Asia because there's a lot of Australasia and Royal Melbourne is by far and away my favorite course in Australia. It's so good. It's, it baffles every time I play it. It's one of those courses. I like it more every time I play it of the two, the West course is the one of, is my favorite. It's incredibly short now, unfortunately, but I'll often go out just with a persimmon wood and a half set blade putter, you know, go old school and, I never, never don't. It's it's even a golf course I'd go play in the rain for fun. You know, it's just, I just love everything about it. Would that be a good uh, format for the PGA Tour is like a half set, like a six or a nine club event? I think that would be great. I think a half set, whatever, yeah, six club, nine club, pick one. I mean, I think the less clubs, the more interesting to a point. Um, three clubs is probably a bit low, but yeah. like six would be really interesting, right? Um that would be a fun tournament, especially around a course that it would suit, you know, like a maybe it's too small for modern golf with all our stuff, but you find but you really want to have an event there and it really worked. Maybe do the six the, the six club thing there. Maybe it's only thirty six holes, but maybe you mark all the players up and, and everybody talks about, Oh, how'd you why'd you pick three iron? I mean, I can't I can't believe you put a three iron in. You've got to go a five iron and then a hybrid or something. I mean you'd have those great kind of debates about 
what everyone was picking and why they were doing it. And do you have a 60 or do you just go 54 or do you go straight from pitching wedge to 60 or do you go nine iron to 54 or like, it'd be great. Yeah. It would, um, that'd be fun. Yeah. I, I think that would be super cool. You could do it at like a, you know, a 6,400 yard classic course too, which would be super fun. Yeah, there'd be so many courses that, that are so great. And unfortunately, almost all of those really great ones are probably getting too short, except for the ones that the USGA has manipulated. Um, that you go one of these really great old, and have like the old school classic or whatever you want to call it. And like we can use modern stuff, but like less clubs. And, and it would be really, really interesting because guys might not take a driver, you know. Three wood might be their max, you know, mm-hmm. because they might want more clubs down the other end of the bag. So, yeah, I think it would be giving guys the choice of which one is to choose and seeing how they thought was best to attack the course. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be a brilliant event. And then you, know, you could have a whole preview show where Phil just walks you through his, his philosophy on each one of his clubs. Yes, that would be, um, he'd write a novel on that one. <laughs> he might carry two drivers. He is maybe, he is one of the more interesting dinner party guests there is on tour i mean he 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 believes with such conviction whether he kind of deep down knows it's like kind of crap or not he just loves trying to get one up in front of everybody and he's he's obviously very very smart and he spends a lot of time trying to outthink the whole thing and it's just fascinating some of the stuff he comes up with he's absolutely brilliant like like, who goes to Torrey Pines without a driver? The longest U.S. Open in history in 2008. He went with two three-woods. He didn't go with a driver. And then he goes to the Masters. Like, well, the year before, I think, he went to the Masters with two drivers and no three-wood. Like, brilliant stuff. I mean, and, and when he tells you for 10 minutes and he'll sell his theory, it's like, yeah, you know what? He's probably right there, you know, because he sells it so well. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, one of a kind. Uh, what about uh, Africa? You know, I haven't played enough there. Um, Royal Durban, maybe. That's pretty good, isn't it, I think? Yeah, I think um, that's a good one. I I haven't played enough to to, um, to 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 make enough of an educated statement on that one, really. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, all right, next quick one here. Uh, if conditions are, are right, firm and fast, what's the winning score at Shinnecock this year? Um, it'll be over par, I would imagine. Um, depending on the tees, I mean, they've built some like Godzilla level tees that, but they don't necessarily use them, right? I mean, a lot of these, you Oakmont, they threw a few tees in that we didn't really scare very much, you know. Um, they put them there in case conditions get to the point where they might want to need that, right? Um, I have. It's such the, the the way the land is there. It's never going to get soft. It's I, I it's hard to imagine Shinnecock too soft. Um, it might be raining, but it's still going to have that firm element because of the sand underneath. So, I would. I think it'll be very close to par. I don't think it will be. It won't be the um, Aaron Hills scoreline. I think it'll be more. Um, if you're even par after three rounds, you're going to have a real chance. That's uh, I I hope that happens. I I wish they wouldn't have narrowed it. That really kind of bugged me. The narrowing, I don't mind the lengthening as much because we do hit the ball so far now. But the narrowing is the offensive stuff because you lose some of the angles and stuff of the you lose the intent, and 
some of these greens, which are unhittable from, say, where the middle of the fairway is now, are very hittable from where the edge of the fairway used to be. Um, and now that the edge of the fairway isn't where it used to be, it's now rough, you don't have McDonald Rayner angle that they said, well, unless you're good, if you can get it here, you can play this hole. If you can't, you can't. Um, I don't like it when that stuff gets taken away. But the length, I don't mind quite as much because in this day and age of state of affairs, we kind of need a bit of length. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I did this article on Augusta and I looked at the holes that they've narrowed with the trees, like 11, and uh, versus the holes that they've just lengthened and haven't really added trees. And it's it's unbelievable. Like those holes that they added the trees that are just trading birdies um, and bogeys for double bogeys. So, you know, like they're just, you know, they're losing excitement and interest in the game because people aren't able to get to certain pins with the right angle. And then the holes that they've just lengthened have like stayed, the distribution over the last 50 years has stayed like exactly the same. Well, because we hit the ball, whatever, let's say 50 yards longer than in 1950 or whatever it would be. Yeah. It, it's probably, and I know they say, well, you shouldn't be hitting seven irons then and all that, but a 200-yard but a shot's a 200-yard shot. You know, like yeah. a seven iron 200 yards and a four iron 200 yards. Yeah, the seven iron's a little easier to hit 200, but the real inherent difficulty in that is the fact that it's 200 yards. Mm-hmm. Um. And the fact that a seven iron now is probably what a five iron was loft wise back then. So it's really like a five iron anyway, right? But yeah. the narrowness, yeah, like 17, seven and 17 are the ones I dislike the least for the new trees at the Masters. The 17th green might be one of the more interesting greens ever built in the world. Um, and the whole point was, especially those, because it's kind of a, a it's, it's high in the middle and it goes down to the right and it goes down to the left kind of the point is the pins on the left you actually want to drive it up the left which is counterintuitive right that's why it's so a clever green and when the pins on the right you want to blow it as far right as you can to kind of be landing into that upslope on the right hand side of the green you can't do that anymore everybody's dictated to hit from the same spot so if you don't hit the uh if you hit the middle of the fairway it's kind of a par three because everybody's hitting their second shot from the same spot um it's clearly more interesting when you, the, the, the fans, the patrons, if you like, behind the green are seeing one guy come in from the middle of the 15th fairway and another guy coming in from over near the 7th green to the same pin. It's like maybe two different theories or, or whatever. And that is interesting, much more interesting than two guys hitting it from the same spot. Well, that's... I think. And, and like you look back at the 1986 Masters where Jack was hitting a second shot on the 17th. He would have been in like a canopy of trees, and he would that the most one of the most famous moments in major in major championship history would never have happened with the Vern Lundquist yes sir call. Like if he played that today, yeah, I know, and I think uh, yeah, width lack of width is is kind of deciding that your greens. And your bunkers are your greens aren't good enough. You know, if if your greens are good enough and they're interesting enough, then it really you don't need any fairway trouble really, because if the green's good enough, there's one really good spot to come in from and lots of bad ones, angle wise. You know? And this obviously takes into account it needs to be firm. Um, but if you get everything right, it doesn't need to be that narrow really. It really doesn't. And and that's this isn't just from a golfer who doesn't like hitting the ball in the rough. I just think it's not about easy or hard. It's about interest. It's about making it more interesting because 
what's going to bring you back next time to either watch it or play it is is how interesting it is and how many different ways there are to do it. Um, when you when you narrow stuff down so much, you dictate where people have to play. It it just it loses a little. Few, again, those shades of grey kind of get lost a little bit because it's a bit more black and white. It's fairway good, rough bad, or trees bad. You know. Um, so yeah, I've got no problem with the length. Yeah. I mean, it's... I do in some ways, but not really. It, it kind of needs to happen if we're going to play the course. But it's the it's the inherent kind of misunderstanding of the strategy and taking the strategy away. Yeah, that's a, I mean, like I think about myself in amateur stuff, like mid-amp stuff, and like my strength in my game is hitting the ball straight. So like it's funny because like I, the golf courses I hate the most that are the most narrow, I I like playing in competition the most, like because it gives me an advantage. <laughs> it's, yes, it's, it's kind of stupid, yeah. but it's uh, no, it's not. I mean, we're all it's all self-interest at the end of the day. Like um, straight hitters like narrow courses, and wild hitters like wide courses, and Long headers like long courses. And, yeah. I mean, there's got to be some self-interest involved. So we do this uh, overrated, underrated segment. Just quick, you know, whether whether this thing is overrated or underrated. So yeah. uh, kangaroos. Underrated. Um, the concept of par. Overrated. Harbor Town. Overrated. That's how... I, I, that's a good take. I, I don't know. I, I, I think Harbor Town's the one I, I, I struggle because like in the history of architecture, I think it's underrated, but playing it today is overrated. I think the way the tour players talk about it, they talk about it in the same breath as Riviera and Pebble Beach and stuff, and it's just not that. I think it's very interesting and it's very good, but it's not that. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'm not I'd... saying it's not good. I'm saying it's overrated, yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, Riviera. I feel like is in a class of itself, and and above all else, on like the regular PGA Tour. I think so too. All right, well, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for your time. I'm really appreciative, and uh, good luck this week. And we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. No worries. Sounds good. Thanks, man. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 